Uh, how many of you would like to be wealthy? Show of hands. Yes, I would love to be wealthy. I think it'd be really enjoyable. I've only gotten close once. My wife, um, after we got married, one year after our wedding, we went to Lithuania uh, to work with Campus Crusade for Christ and teach at Vilnius University. Uh, it was awesome. We got a chance to share in a lot of classrooms, got a chance to share the gospel everywhere. Uh, it was great. And financially, it was unbelievable. When we got there, the Soviet Union was still intact, so it was 30 rubles to the dollar. Uh, but then the walls of the Soviet Union collapsed while we were still in Lithuania, and now it jumped all the way up to 190 rubles per dollar. So a, a loaf of bread that had cost a dollar now just cost 10 cents. I took my wife on our second anniversary. There was a place called the Sticklia Restaurant. Best restaurant in all of Lithuania. It's where they took Vice President Quayle when he visited. Uh, we went there, had a seven-course meal. I tipped 100%. And it came out to 12 American dollars. Oh, it was unbelievable. Uh, and I said to my wife as we were leaving, I really could get used to this. Now, James is jumping in and he's going to say, but don't envy the rich. In an interesting letter, he is now going to talk to non-Christian business people who, in his estimation, are wealthy, and he wants to shy away our envying of them and wanting to be like them. He has four basic critiques against the uh, rich that we're going to take a look at. But first, grab your Bibles, stand with me, and let's take a look at the word of God that was written to the 12 dispersed tribes, but via the Holy Spirit... Uh, he had you in mind. So when James wrote this, he was thinking of modern Christians as well, uh, and nothing could be more applicable to what James writes. So in chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the heirs of the Lord. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> James has four critiques against the wealthy. First, they have hoarded their wealth. Second, their unpaid wages. They said they would pay people who worked for them, and they have skimped them. They haven't paid what they said. Luxury and self-indulgence and murder of innocents. That's code for murder of Christians. Now, we're only going to take a look at two of these. We're going to take a look at hoarding of wealth and a luxury and self-indulgence. Again, these are non-Christian business people. The reason we suspect that is so is he never refers to them as brethren, and he never calls on them to repent, uh, which is interesting. Earlier, when he talked about Christians in the churches that were business people, he did call them to repent and called them brethren. So why talk about non-Christian business people in a letter that is meant to go to the 12 dispersed tribes? John Calvin commented that he doesn't want us to fall in love with wealth. He doesn't want us to fall in love with the wealthy. 
So let's take a look at the hoarding of wealth. Uh, But first, let me say this. Some of you might be thinking, well, this is awesome. Go after the rich. Put the rich in place. Good. About time somebody did that. But I'm going to make the argument that based on uh, global economics, we are the wealthy. So there's a horrible website that I share with all my students called globalrichlist.com. And what it does is you punch in your income and it compares you globally. So if we take the average medium household income in Orange County, which is 75998 and you were to punch it into Global Rich List, this is what they would come up with. You are in the top 0.11% richest people in the world by income. In one hour, you make $39.58. Meanwhile, the average wage earner in Zimbabwe makes 53 cents in the same time. Now... The college students are saying, well, that's great. It's good that you talk about the adult rich because they need to get their act together. Well, if you punch in what an average college student makes in a year, including the summer job, you'd get roughly $4,000. Punch that in, and a college student is in the top 26.72% richest people in the world. In an hour, you make roughly $2.08 compared to what a Zimbabwe farmer would make. So we're all in the same boat. We are the wealthy of the world. Now, let me just say this. Some of you are here, and you literally are going paycheck to paycheck. James is not talking to you. Some of you are deeply struggling financially, and it looks like you're going under. Right now, you cannot pay your bills. James is not talking to you. However, if you're going to paycheck by paycheck because of bad decisions, James is absolutely talking to you. Remember last week I mentioned my friend who lived in a luxurious house in Lockmere Highlands in North Carolina, and it was killing his marriage. He had to work such long hours, and his wife had to work just to pay the bills to stay in the house, that they decided to downsize. Absolutely, James would be talking to them. If you're going to paycheck by paycheck because you're living a life that you just simply can't sustain, then I think you're part of James's critique. Boy, as Americans, we need to distinguish between wants and needs. And so James is going to kind of get into our business. Hoarding wealth is what he's particularly interested in. He says this, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. You can't even wear everything you have. You have so many clothes that the moths are getting toward to them because you can't wear them out of storage. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. I don't know if you've ever seen clothes that have been moth-ridden. It's not pretty to take a look at. Uh, I got a chance to work in the Mathari Valley. Mathari Valley is one of the... Um, uh, poorest places in the continent of Africa. I had never seen poverty like that before. Uh, Kids running around with nothing to eat, wearing ripped up clothes. I saw a bunch of kids playing soccer one day and thought that was kind of cool until I realized the soccer ball was a big dead rat. And I was like, oh my gosh, right? I'd never seen anything like this. But you don't have to go to the Mathari Valley to see people who are wearing clothes that are dirty and Uh, moth-ridden and full of holes, you can just go right to Skid Row. And we have individuals like that. So I think James is saying, how much do you have? And do you need all that you have? Now, Biola University 
uh, moved us from North Carolina here. It was awesome. Uh, and, but we went from a 2,200 square foot house to roughly a 1,200 foot square house. So we had to get rid of a ton of stuff. And we did. We purged like crazy. We gave away a ton to Goodwill. It was embarrassing how much we had. The stuff in the attic alone was insane how much we had. And we just realized we can't take all of this, nor should we take all of this. You know, it's kind of funny about the movers. Uh, in our living room, <clears throat> we had a, uh, when my kids were young, the fireplace was the perfect hockey goal. So we played Nerf hockey in that room all the time. My wife would always say, honey, don't play there. I got all these picture frames and whatever. And every once in a while, we'd hit a picture frame, absolutely shatter the glass and kind of just put it away and hope mom didn't find it, you know, and she knew about it. So when we were finally getting moved, the mover said to Noreen, hey, I just noticed, is this like a family fun thing that you don't put any glass in the frames? And Noreen just gave me one of these spousal looks. I said to the worker, yeah, it's a family tradition. We just, our love of the family, we don't want to be behind anything. Glass or frame. But man, we got rid of a lot of stuff. Men and women, we are so wealthy in this country that we have fashionized poverty. We are so wealthy in this country that Kanye West produces a t-shirt with a riff in it and charges $1,000. We are so wealthy that we fashionize what is true of other people's existence. Holes in jeans, we fashionize it. And I just wonder what the poor in Orange County think when they see us wearing what they have to wear as a fashion statement. Now, one could say, well, what's my concern, what the poor think? And James would come back very quickly and say, true religion in the sight of God is caring for orphans and widows in distress. It's caring for those who have no advocate, who have no resources. So I wonder if we shouldn't make a statement as a body of believers to say, we care about the poor. We do not fashionize the plight of the poor. Um, Now, just please know, I did this for my students at Biola University, and they were like, Dr. Mealhoff, you have lost your mind. Okay, so just know you're not alone if you're sitting there going, what? But I think we need to think about that. I think it'd be good for us to think about that. Then he goes on to money. Their rust will be a witness against you, and it will consume your flesh like fire. Money has this crazy way of dominating everything that we think about. Uh, I love what the message says. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes literally stink because they've been in storage. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut. It it will consume you uh, chasing the American dream. Remember, we critiqued that last year. So when it comes to wealth, are even the wealthy content with wealth? Remember that study I mentioned last uh, week, keeping up with the Joneses, about neighbors trying to keep up with the people who had won the lottery? Uh, we know from research that lottery winners are traditionally would rate themselves, my life is less happy, I'm less content than I was before I actually won the lottery. By the way, wouldn't you love to be part of that study and just say, hey, I'll give it a try. I would love to give me millions of dollars, and I just would love to see if it's going to make me miserable. I would love to be the outlier in those kind of studies. Yeah, most everybody was miserable. The Mulehouse are having a blast, right? Kind of a thing. 
So J.D. Rockefeller, uh, third most wealthy person on the list of the most wealthy. He is worth, was worth, $340 billion. Now, just to put that in context, imagine someone gave you a million dollars and told you to spend 1,000 of that every day and come back when you ran out of money. You would return with no money in three years. Now, if somebody gave you a billion dollars, uh, and told you to spend it $1,000 each day, you would be spending for about, how many years do you think you'd be spending $1,000 a day before you got to uh, $1 billion? The answer? 2,740 years it would take for you to spend $1 billion spending 1000 a day. So you would think the rich have nothing to worry about and their life is content. J.D. Rockefeller was famously asked, well, how much is enough? And his response is equally famous. One dollar more. We can become consumed by money. That's why Corey Ten Boom says, money belongs in your wallet, not in your heart. Do not let this money consume you. Remember, I already said last week, money can be of great service to God's kingdom. Uh, John Wesley was wealthy. Why? Because he, with his hymns that he wrote, and also his sermons, he copyrighted them. So anytime he used it, he got a royalty, and he was incredibly wealthy and used it for great good for the kingdom. He says this, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Now, much disagreement on what James has meant by a day of slaughter. Some argue, remember I already said one of the critiques was the killing of innocents, that he was, uh, the wealthy were killing Christians or even killing uh, poor individuals. So for certainly, uh, James could be saying the day of slaughter, uh, you've grown luxurious as other people literally are dying because of your neglect. Or it means eschatologically at the great day of slaughter, at the great judgment where God's going to judge all of humankind. I tend to lend it to James is saying the day of slaughter is things are happening and you have grown fat and you're not even aware of your surroundings of what's happening. Uh, Let me show you a book that absolutely haunts me. It's called Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust by David Gushy. David Gushy is a Christian ethicist. He came to Biola University, spoke to our faculty. He came and he taught a class years ago. I took that class from him. And his project was during World War II when um, it became slightly obvious that the death camps were in process, that Hitler was getting rid of Jews, gypsies, and homosexuals. Uh, Hitler also wanted to root out anybody that would help Jews. So imagine your family, there's a knock on the door one day. You open the door and there's a Jewish woman holding a baby asking for sanctuary, asking for you to help her escape. Now understand that in many cases that Jewish woman was being forced to help the Nazis or she would die in her baby and it was a sting operation. The Gestapo's were sending that woman to your house. You knock and you say, hey, yes, we'll help you. Well, guess what? You got turned in and your whole family was sent off to a death camp. So Gushy wanted to know who did help during the Holocaust. You know what his number one answer was? It was not the religious. The religious clocked in roughly at 30%. Do you know who were the people that helped the most? It was people who grew up in what he called moral homes. It's where the parents, not Christians, not religious, they simply said, listen, good people help neighbors, period. 
You just got to help the people around you. And those were the people who stepped up and helped Jews uh, and lost their lives in in, uh, many situations. But the cool thing about the book is Gushy describes what he means by a bystander. Now, this is where it gets really convicting. Gushy says there are four characteristics of a bystander. Number one, you are not aware of the issue. You honestly don't know what's going on. I I didn't know that the death camps were happening. I didn't know about the Syrian refugee crisis. I honestly didn't know. Second, you are aware of it, but it doesn't concern you. Hey, I'm not Jewish. Why should I help Jewish people? I'm not uh, going to help Syrians. It's just not part of my... Um, compassion quotient. Number three, you are aware and concerned, but you feel like you can't make a difference. I mean, what resources do I have to help the Syrian refugee crisis? The last one, you are aware, you are concerned, you do have resources, and you act. Now we need to ask the question as Christians, what kind of bystander are we when we take a look at the plight of not only Orange County, but of the entire world? Now, we've heard about the Syrian refugee crisis. It's been like elevator music in the background. It's even become politicized. Uh, One of the candidates has wanted to close the borders and not let Syrians in for fear of legitimate fear of letting in uh, terrorist sleeper cells, right? Um, But so the Syrians are in desperate situation. It is the largest humanitarian crisis the UNICEF has ever identified. There are 11 million, half of the Syrian population are displaced. 250 Syrians have been murdered, and 50% of the remaining Syrians are children. So the question becomes, what do you do? A lot of countries have reacted by saying, we cannot let you in, one, because of terrorist threat, but two, you will destroy our economy. And so now many places are simply saying to these refugees, go away, we do not want you. So with the refugee crisis, what do you do? Well, number one, are you aware of it? Well, bummer, tag, you're it. (laughs) You are now aware of it, sorry. Should have been a warning before you came in. Number two, now if we're honest, number two is convicting. If we're honest, we might sit here and say, well, I don't care about Syrian, I don't know any. I don't necessarily care. That's where James would step up. And James would say, I'm sorry, did you not read the first part of my letter? Did you not read when I said true religion in the sight of God was caring for orphans and widows in distress? Now, by the way, he's not limiting it to orphans and widows, literally. Everybody agrees he's using it as a type that we are to look out for the disadvantaged. We're to look out for those that are poor. We are to look out for people who have no advocates whatsoever. So what do you do? You say, okay, all right, I'm aware of it. Now I'm getting burdened. Thank you. Uh, But what can I do? I have no resources. How can I help? Well, there are so many websites that would make you laugh. If you just punched into your Google search, Syrian refugee crisis, what can I do? You'll get hit with 50 million websites. Now, of course, you'd have to vet those websites to see if they're up to speed. But there's many places that we can help. But, and again, somebody came up to me in between services and said, man, I'm just, I'm just fatigued already. And media scholars have come up with a term called compassion fatigue. I mean, Haiti is still in bad shape. There's sex trafficking that's happening. There are more slaves today than at any point in human history. And so you get hit with so many issues, you can just shut down and say, I just, I just don't know what to do. 
We'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's take time to reflect. What is it that you're aware of that you have not acted on yet? What need are you aware of that you just haven't responded? And to ask the Holy Spirit, why haven't I responded? Take a second and reflect on that. I think it would be appropriate to come to the Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, lay something on my heart with all that's happening. And again, we can talk about evangelism, the fulfilling of the Great Commission, poverty, sex trafficking. What do you want me to do? And again, here's the cool thing. If you feel like the Holy Spirit isn't directly laying something on your heart, then just pick one. Because God cares about all of them. So just say, Lord, I guess if you haven't laid anything on my heart, I'm going to use my resources on the one that I'm interested in, and I'm going to go do it. Again, we might ask the question, well, what can we do about poverty? My goodness. Well, uh, Harry Belafonte was the one who created um, We Are the World. Remember that? It was a great coming together of musicians. Bruce Springsteen, a bunch of different artists came together and raised millions and millions and millions for poverty. In Africa, particularly. One person said to Harry Belafonte, Harry, are you arrogant enough to think you can end poverty and hunger everywhere? And Harry Belafonte responded, no, but I can, I can feed one person. I think that's a great way for us to think, is let's act. So what should we do? A couple of different things. Uh, one, let's take a look at what Paul had to say. Paul said this, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. When accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these things, shall we be content? Boy, that word contentment. Man, I often wrestle with the Spirit. And I feel like the Holy Spirit says to me, Tim, are you content? Right? Are you always looking at something else? Wanting something else, or to be somebody else, or to do something. Do you ever just sit down and be content? By the way, that is what Sabbath rest is supposed to be. I mean, we're crazy as Americans. God says, I want you one day out of the week to just be. I want that one day out of the week, just be content with what I gave you. Don't pray for future stuff during this day. Just rest in the fact that God's grace is upon you. Rest in the fact that you've been forgiven. Rest in the fact of the verse we were singing about, that God has set you free. This is not a day for you to think about what can we improve on the house. This isn't a day to think about clothing or fashion or anything. The Sabbath is a day where we just say, I'm good. God, I'm good. 
thank you for what you've given me. I think we've lost that. So contentment is of great value. And we need to ask the question maybe, why aren't we content? Are we, are we allowing Hollywood or media to give us false notions of what it means to be an American or to accomplish the American dream? Paul says this, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs, Paul says. Money is of great benefit, but the love of money uh, should not usurp love for God or love for the kingdom. I, I think there was a great illustration given in the Old Testament The children of Israel are wandering in the Old Testament. Miraculously, their clothes are not wearing out, and they are eating manna. Manna would come only for that day. Uh, You couldn't store it. It would rot very quickly. So you had to just take the manna that you were given today, eat it, and know that God's going to give you more manna tomorrow. I think as Americans, we need to think about that. I'm giving you um, gifts James would say in the beginning of James, every good gift is from God. So let's be content in what we have and not worry that we're not going to get more of it. How many of you have the same reaction the Mielhoffs do? Let's say you get an unexpected tax return or you get um, just a bump in your paycheck for whatever reason. How many of you feel like we do where you get that extra money and you're like, oh, nuts, nuts. Now the dishwasher is going to break. Right, we got some extra money and now the car is going to shut down because we never just get extra money where we can save it. Uh, it, it always something happens. God's up there laughing. God's up there saying, I gave you the money because your dishwasher is going to stop working. That's why you got it. If you don't need it, I don't need to give it to you. So trust me, I will give you what you need. Don't it. I'm amazed by people I meet who are givers. They're just givers. My wife and I were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for almost 30 years. 30 years we raised our support. We met with couples, we met with churches, and I was blown away by the generosity of people. We, two, two stories. I walk into one house as we're driving up. Somebody just gave us the name, the address. As we're walking up, it is in a poor, poor section of North Carolina. And as we're coming up, I say to my wife, we're not asking this couple for money. We'll just ask them to be on our prayer team because this house is in shambles. We walk in, we sit down, they give us a very modest dinner. Seriously, we're dressed so much better than they are. And then finally, this one man says to me, well, we understand that there's things that you need to be missionaries. I said, yes, we need people on our prayer letter list. Would you just pray for us? He goes, yes, we will. And he has teeth as bad as you could imagine. Yes, but we also understand, don't you need like money? And I'm like, well, you know, no. I mean, we're doing well. No, things are well. Well, we've prayed about it. And we would like to come on board for X amount of dollars. And I'm like, guys, seriously, you do not need to do that. And I've heard, aren't you going to Lithuania? Yep. Well, we heard it's really cold. Don't you need clothes? Yeah, we're going to buy clothes. Yeah, we're going to be on a whole shopping list. Oh, wait. He goes, gets his winter coat, and says, take my coat. His name was Willie. I said, Willie, I cannot take your coat. Willie, I, I'm going to buy a winter coat. I promise I'm going to buy one. Tim, 
take my winter coat. I was like, oh. And Willie said, Tim, don't deny me this blessing. I was like, Willie, I'm going to take your coat. Met with another woman. She's on Social Security. Sat down with her again. We don't know these people ahead of time. We're just giving contact names. That's it. So I sit down again. I say to Noreen, honey, we're not asking for money. Noreen goes, honey, you do understand. Eventually, we need to ask for money, okay? You do understand. Yes, but not this one. And she's like, no, got it. We're not asking for money. So we just sit down. Wonderful elderly lady oh, on Social Security. Awesome. She goes, well, you guys need money, don't you? I said, no, we need people on our prayer list is what we need. She goes, nope. I know you need money, and I'm going to tithe my Social Security check. Guys, it was so humbling. Givers give. And by the way, every, everybody who raises support knows about the 80-20 rule. Every single Campus Crusade for Christ staff member, every university, every missionary, every church has the 80-20 rule. 80% of the people will not give you a dime. will not give you the dime. And the 20%, those are the names that are recycled every single time. Doesn't matter what church you go to, you get the same 20% 20 of those people. Right? The givers give and other people just don't. So boy, to be part of the 20%, even if you can't say yes. Even if you can't say yes. But people know, oh, this couple, these are the couple you go to. They're the givers. Now, again, if you're, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and, and you're just thinking, man, I'd love to be a giver, that's okay. James is not talking about you. He's talking about us who have surplus and what to do with our surplus. Don't hoard manna is what James is saying. God will give you more of it. And then he says this. I think this is so wise to say. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. That word complain in the Greek, I won't, try, I won't butcher how to say it. It means an inner groan rather than an outward complaint. This is really interesting nuance of a Greek word. So uh, I don't doubt after a sermon like this, we're all going to judge each other. Right? We're going to walk out in that parking lot and somebody's going to get in a car. And you're going to be like, are you kidding me? He's like in a Z whatever. Right? And you're going to want to think in your heart, Syrian refugee crisis. <laughs> As you drink your macchiato coffee that you had to work out financing to get, right? So James is saying, no, this is between you and the Lord. This is between you and the Lord. So the classic question, whenever I preach on this, is can a Christian own a Lexus? Number one question I get. Not to pick on Lexuses, okay? This is the number one question I get. Here is my answer. I don't know. So, um, <laughs> no, oh, no, no. Here, here, <laughs> here's my answer. I'll never, Dr. Bill Bright is the one who started Campus Crusade for Christ. I have such great admiration for him. He was a very successful chocolate uh, developer. That's how he got his money to start Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, he was once asked this question, and this was Dr. Bright's response. I think it was wise. He said, yes, for some people, they should own a Lexus. There are certain pockets of culture that you have to have certain credibility to speak into that pocket of society. So I think in certain areas, you got to have a Lexus, and you got to have a certain kind of suit, and, you, and maybe it's good to belong to the country club. 
Because your business will not work unless those things are intact. And how will you influence people for Christ within those upper echelons if you don't have the credibility to gain access? But notice what Dr. Bill Bright did. He said it isn't about the Lexus. It's about how you're going to use it for the kingdom. Right? So I'm not opposed to a person having a vacation home. So long as our thought would be, hey, this is great to enjoy in our family. We have such rich times here. But man, it's like empty so often throughout the entire year. Hey, let's take our vacation home and open it up to the church. And to say, are there any missionaries who would just love to come and spend 10 days, two weeks at this vacation home, our gift to them? So you see what I mean? I think it's God saying, seek first the kingdom. I'm not opposed to wealth. I'm not opposed to money. Just don't love it. Don't make it an idol. And are you always ready to use your resources um, for my kingdom? I think that's what James is getting at. And don't hoard this stuff. Not that we shouldn't have financial planning and retirement. But, but use it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln once said of General Grant who wasn't the best military general. But here's what uh, Lincoln once said of Grant. He said, hey, listen, he's a general who fights. Lincoln was so tired of these generals who had a great army and never used the army, would never engage with the South. And he said, about, he said about Grant, I love him because he gets in there and he fights. I think God would say to many of us, I love you because you're not afraid to use your wealth. And so what practical application can we take from this? I love OC United. OC United did not pay me to say this. Totally took Jay by surprise when I called them and said, hey, I'm making you a big point of my sermon. I have a book coming out with Rick Langer, a good friend of mine, called Winsome Persuasion, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. Uh, It'll be out in the fall. And in it, we talk about strategies just like OC United. Men and women, culture is rapidly moving away from Christian values, and there are a lot of people who don't want to work with us. The more conservative we are via EV Free Fullerton, there's a lot of groups who want nothing to do with us, yet we still want to reach them with the gospel. A group like OC United, who's made up of us, has a wonderful way of reaching out to people with none of the baggage of being an evangelical church. So they can go out and help the poor and even partner with other groups to help the poor and then share the gospel with those other groups as they form these kind of partnerships. I think OC United is the future of what all churches need to be thinking about is having a nonprofit extension of the church because the church is going to become marginalized and people are going to be very angry at us as we hold to social issues. So let's have a branch that's us. OC United to me was one of the best forward-thinking decisions this church has made in a long time. So get involved with OC United to help those who have nothing. Um, they deal with the poor. They deal with um, foster care kids, domestic violence issues is a great way and one quick thing that you can do that the Muehlhoff family is going to do is Thanksgiving is a wonderful time um, but for a lot of families it's not a wonderful time it's a haunting reminder that they don't have anything here in Orange County so if you walk right out there to my right you're going to see this Thanksgiving sign you can for roughly $39 put together a Thanksgiving uh, meal for a couple that just simply can't afford any of that what a great tradition that would be for us to start it for the Muehlhoffs we love to help a couple help a family and then we go and watch the Detroit Lions lose I mean that's just 
what we do on Thanksgiving Day. So go check out OC United. They're all outside right now. Here's what James concludes with. Be patient. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming. Stand firm. Some of us, it's scary to think, well, I I do like having a big nest egg. I do like having surplus. It makes me feel better. And I think James is saying, listen, remember I said your life's a vapor? Well, guess what? You might not even get the whole vapor that Jesus is coming back. And I think for us, to hear that Jesus is coming back just doesn't work for us. Why? Because James said this roughly, what, 2,000 years ago? And he's not come back. Paul thought Jesus' coming back was imminent, and Jesus hasn't come back. So, man, let's distinguish between judgment and Jesus' coming back. And my first seminary professor ever was Walt Kaiser, Old Testament scholar. I took a class on Malachi, and he said he believed that God was ready to judge the United States on many occasions, but that the church rose up. In the 1960s, during the sexual revolution, that's when the student volunteer movement started, groups like Crusade and Varsity Navigators, and, it, and he thinks it stayed God's judgment uh, on us. Now, we know we can hasten the second coming of Christ by preaching the gospel everywhere. And by the way, via technology, that's becoming more and more possible to hit places that we couldn't get to before. So men and women don't have this hoarder's mentality. James is saying that manna that you were given, the good gifts you were given, trust God. He's got more of that. You can't outspend God. And he's saying, man, life's short. You are a vapor, and Christ is going to come back. And when he comes back, we want to be givers who pay attention to the community and respond to orphans and widows in distress. So stand with me. Or put yourself in a position of reception. let's pray this let's do an assignment for the week when I see a need the first thing I will do is ask God what part do you want me to play I'll never forget walking out of a different church we belonged to before this church. And uh, there was a homeless man right in Brea. I'd seen him a lot. He, we, many of us would know. We've seen this individual quite a bit. And um, we get into the car. We get all the way home. We're all the way home. It is football time. It is God's time. It is football <laughs> time. And my sweet youngest child, uh, was teary-eyed. I said, hey, what's going on? He said, man, I, Dad, we should have helped him. We should have helped that guy. I was like, who? Oh, Dad, there's this homeless guy right in Brea. I was like, oh, oh okay. He goes, well, let's go find him. I'm like, okay, let's go do it. Let's go do it. So we drove all around, and sure enough, there he was. And we walked up to him, me and my son. I said, hey, and I gave my son some money. I said, hey, my son would like to meet you. And so my son shook his hand and said, hey, God wants us to give you this money. And the homeless man just said, oh, okay. I said, hey, can I pray for you? And I prayed for him. That, right, what does Jesus say? Hey, be like a child in my kingdom. Be like a child. Have a child's attitude. 
We can do something about the homeless. Not in the world, but we can do something about the homeless in Orange County. Having enough faith just to believe that God is serious when he says, care for people, act, do it now. Uh, I was really convicted that day. Um, so let's be like that. When we see a need, it doesn't necessarily mean we got to jump in and do it. But our first gut level reaction ought to be, God, I just saw this need. I do think I have resources. Do you want me to act? And if the question is even marginal, act. Right? Let me pray for us. Father, we, we are um, thankful that we belong to one of the wealthiest countries in the world a country of great freedom. Father, I pray for people in this congregation who wish they could be generous, but financially they just simply can't. I pray that you would give them peace to remove them from any false guilt. Father, that you would move us in this congregation to reach out to these individuals. Father, thank you for OC United. Thank you for what they stand for. Thank you for this desire to give people Thanksgiving dinners. And pray that we could respond uh, and provide people with food and uh, a spiritual witness. Lord, thank you. Let us be good stewards of the manna you have given us. We pray in your son's name. Amen.